Well, as a kid, I remember playing sports. I played basketball, baseball, and occasionally soccer. But I can't remember anything more than I just had fun playing. Some of the teams were good. Most of them were bad. But I still had fun. Things are different for me now. I was a, an assistant coach for my youngest son's soccer team. And I'm the head coach of the baseball team that my, both of my boys are playing on. What I've seen with them is how quickly they get over a loss. They'll sulk in the car, complain that they went hitless or that they lost. And then by the time we get home, they're ready for lunch and ready to go out and play. I, on the other hand, can't stop thinking about every single play. What if I made that substitution? What if I switched those players? If he had only made that shot, I'm just a volunteer. I'm not on the field, but I, I find myself acting as if each game is a matter of life and death. It's my tendency to make these games matter more than they really do. Now, everything my kids do matters. Hear me on that. I enjoy it. Everything that they do, I'll watch. But these are still just games. In the grand scheme of life, they're an hour. And I live and die with each game and each play. Those games that, that, that we lose, I'm judging myself and thinking through, what if I did something different? And the truth of the matter is the wins and losses can't judge my success as a coach. The margins of victory cannot judge my success as a coach. That's where we're judged by, by every other standard, every other objective standard says a coach that's successful has to win games. It's easy to see this record. And what I found is that I enjoy being a volunteer coach, but I'd hate to do that for a living. I would hate for my job to be based on winning and losing. Too much stress. Now, spiritually speaking, because you know I'm bringing this back spiritually, spiritually speaking, I'd hate for my eternal fate to rest on my wins and my losses. If you think that a coach is stressed out because he wins or he loses and his entirety, uh, his job is based on that, he'll get another job. She'll find another place to coach. But what if your fate was determined by how well you behaved? how much you won, how successful you were by the world's standards. Church, I can tell you this, I am so glad that my salvation is not dependent on my wins and my losses. I'm glad that my security does not rest on my winning percentage or how, how, how much I beat other teams or how much better I was than you, because I'm not. But rather on the victory that Christ has already won. But we fail, we lose, and we fail at even remembering that, don't we? We've all had our moments in our lives where we keep doing things over and over, even though we know that it's wrong, it seems like we just can't stop. Read through the book of Romans and you'll find a lot of theology, and if you read it in one sitting, you'll be bombarded with brilliant theology, but then you'll hit chapter 7 and something strange will come up. The Apostle Paul, who wrote uh, half of the New Testament, says something strange. 
says this, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. And then he talks about how big of a wretch he is. What happens to Paul is what happens to you, and it what, it's what happens to me. It happens to all of us, is we continue to do the things that we know we shouldn't do. A Christian who does not struggle against their own flesh, their own desires, is either not a Christian or is a Christian who's not paying attention. The entirety of our lives is a battle against sin in the flesh, and we often lose. My son's as I said earlier, are playing baseball right now. And this is the first season either one of them has played, and so they're learning the game. I believe they'll, they'll improve. They're improving already, but it's still new. And the fact is that some kid that's twice their size is throwing a ball very fast and sometimes at their head, it's a little intimidating. No one wants to get hurt. No one wants to look foolish striking out. And having played baseball, I can say this with firm belief, the hardest thing to do in sports is to take a round bat and to hit a round ball that someone is throwing as fast as they can at you, and the good pitchers make the ball go in different spaces. It's the hardest thing to do. But my oldest son gets so frustrated that he's not able to hit home runs every time he comes to bat. And I said this, I said, that will come, you will get hits, they may not be homers, but they'll get hits. You'll get better. You'll improve. But even if you get really, really good, guess what? You're going to fail more times than you succeed. The greatest baseball hitter of my generation is, is a guy named Tony Gwynn. Played his entire career for the San Diego Padres, and his career batting average was 338. If you don't know anything about baseball, what that means is that about 33% of the time he got a hit. Which means that two-thirds of the time that he hit the ball, he would either hit the ball and get out or he would strike out. He'd fail two-thirds of the time. And I tried to bring this down to, the, to my kid's level, and I, and I said that most of what you do in life will end in failure. You'll need a job, and you'll send out 200 resumes, and you may get one call back. But the key is to continue to learn from each mistake. That's where success comes into our lives, isn't it? You improve, you learn from each mistake, you get better and better. But, but what about our spiritual lives? What does it say about us when we keep sinning even though we know better? See, the truth is all I knew about Abraham, and this may be the, your story too, all that I knew about Abraham when I was a kid was that he had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham, and I'm one of them and so are you, and so we'd march. I think a lot of that was time filler and it was to get the wiggles out of the kids. I didn't know any of this stuff about Abraham. So in my mind, it was, well, God loved Abraham because Abraham was righteous. That Abraham did good things. Abraham behaved himself. Unlike me, Abraham did what he was supposed to do, so God gave him eternal life. That's the furthest thing from what the Bible says. I didn't realize how messed up Abraham was. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. After all that Abraham had dealt with, 
his own sin, and then God reminding him that the covenant was not based on how much Abraham could do, but rather how faithful God was. After all of that, Abraham committed the same sin again. Sin against God and sin against his wife. It seems as if he's learned nothing. He's just witnessed the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He saw the justice of God being poured out on a wicked people. And rather than staying where he was, he left. It doesn't say this, but maybe he didn't want to be reminded of this every day. But then he lies again. Sarah was in her 90s, so she was an older woman. So why would Abraham lie about her? Why would he lie about that, that, that she was his sister and not his wife? She was married to one of the richest men in the world with power and land. A mighty foe who defeated four kings. He had fame. And he thought that it would be just a little safer if we lied about this. It's the same lie he told in Genesis chapter 12. He falls back into his sinful habits. Instead of trusting God, Abraham devised his own plan to keep his family and his fortune together. Lying is a sin. He sinned. When we lie, we are ignoring what God has said to us. And sometimes we think this. We think, eh, you know what? This is just between me and God. I can repent for this later, that, that I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not doing any damage to anybody's property. I'm, I'm not. It doesn't affect anybody else. You ask that wife if the lusting of her husband affects her. It does. Our sin never just affects us. Think about what Sarah's gone through in this. Yes, she was guilty against Hagar. What she did to her was horrific, but she's also been the victim of Abraham's sin as well. He lied about her previously, and now he's doing it again. Wives, how would you feel if your husband introduced you to someone else and saying, this is my sister? Abraham's sin reached beyond just him and God. See, I preach about sin because you can't understand the goodness of God. You cannot understand the gospel until you realize the depravity of our sin. You cannot realize the greatness and goodness of God until you realize how bad we really are. So I preach about sin. That's the primary reason why I do it. There's nothing more important than that, but a second reason is this, and it's Less important, but it's still important. Sin destroys everything that it touches. You let sin get a foothold in your marriage, it will wreak havoc on your family. I don't want any marriage to suffer, whether it's a Christian marriage or not. All creation belongs to God, and anything that seeks to damage relationships that God has created must be recognized and dealt with. But we know, we know this. We all do this. We all veer from the course of God's instruction. We all go our own way. God's given us something that Abraham didn't have. God's given us his, his word, his spirit, and the church to help guide us. But we often reject that in favor of our own preferences or for the sake of expediency. So what happened to Abraham here? 
Our sins are often repeated sins, aren't they? Here's what I mean. If you're a cool, level-headed person who doesn't ever get angry, you're probably not going to be dealing with recurrent anger. But maybe you have a problem with lust, that, that you see things and you start imagining things and you start thinking about things that, that, are, that are ungodly, that are sinful, that we shouldn't touch, that we shouldn't even get near. You're not going to have to battle against anger. You have to battle your eyes. And what your flesh wants, so you attack it. You go after that. You don't go after anger. You go after your lust. You go after what ails you. Maybe Abraham might have. We don't know. But the truth is that he failed. He lied again. The sin that has caused so many problems for so many people uh, with Abraham at its root was a distrust in God. He just didn't trust God. He lied because he didn't have enough trust to, to believe that God would do what he promised to do. God says this. He says, I will give you a son through your wife. And he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and nothing. So he grabs Hagar, and they abuse her, and they, they, they get her pregnant, and she has a son. But that's not the promised seed. And so he waits, and he waits, and he waits some more. And he lies multiple times about his own wife, the one he is called to protect and to love more than any other person. Truth is, he shouldn't have sinned, and neither should we. Sin is bad. We accept that. We shouldn't sin. So the easiest thing to do, right, is just to stop sinning. Let's just stop. We know it's wrong. Let's stop doing it. Right? Stop. Don't ever do it again. Well, I've got good news, and I've got bad news. The good news is that that will happen. There's a promised future for the believer that that will happen, but it won't happen this side of heaven. And that's the bad news. The bad news is that we won't experience this freedom yet. We're already saved and promised eternal life, but we're not yet to the finish line. Now let me give you an illustration that may help this. We're at the beach, and there's lots of people on the sand and even in the water, and we're enjoying a nice summer day. Everybody but you. You're 100 feet out and 100 feet down. You're dead. You've sunk. You're gone. You're dead. There's, there's no more you. Until all of a sudden, someone grabs you and pulls you out, throws you onto a boat, and breathes life into your lungs. You're alive. This is what Jesus has done for us. We, we were dead at the bottom of the ocean, and he reached down and through his grace and mercy and love, grabbed us, pulled us back on the boat, breathed life into our lungs. Now here's what happens. We tend to say, okay, that story I get. I understand the gospel. I get that. But what happens next? So we go on the boat and we hit shore. And as you've seen in every movie, you know when you hit the shore, it's not dry. You have to get out and walk in the water. The water in this illustration is sin. So even as Jesus is pulling us to the shore, even as he is carrying us to the shore, we're still getting hit by wave after wave after wave. Yes, we're a little bit drier than we were before. Yes, absolutely we are secure in the arms of Christ. He's not letting us go. 
But the water keeps hitting us and hitting us. And even when we're brought into the dry shore, we're still wet, aren't we? But as we move further up the coast and move further up into the sand, we are drying off. Christ is drying us off. Do you, do you see this illustration that, that, that even though that we're saved and we're forgiven and we're given new life, we're still getting hit, we're still getting pounded with the waves of sin. And this is how the Bible describes us. That Jesus reached down and grabbed our lifeless bodies and he breathed life into us and made us alive. The Christian life is one where we battle sin but we do so resting in Christ. The waves will never stop. We're going to be beaten and battered, but we continue to rest in Christ, looking forward to the day when all wrongs are made right and sin will be destroyed and defeated forever. So you say, well, what does this have to do with Abraham? Abraham was seen as righteous because he had faith, not because he was good. Abraham's faith was a gift of God, and he had the promise of the covenant, but that doesn't mean that he was somehow immune from sinning or from the effects of sin. For the Christian today, we can take comfort in the fact that God works the same today as he did in Abraham's life. The covenant made with Abraham was not dependent on the goodness or the faithfulness of Abraham. The covenant was based only on the goodness and faithfulness of God. Same thing for us today. It's good to fight against your sin. It's good to fight against your flesh. It's good to hate those things that pull you away from finding comfort in the Savior. It's good to want to rid yourself of those things that cause yourself pain. And even though the victory has been promised, we are still at war, not with guns and bombs, but we fight against spiritual powers, evil, even in our own lives. So just because Abraham was saved by God and, and brought into the covenant doesn't mean that Abraham never stopped sinning. He did. He, he keeps sinning. He keeps doing this. His flesh keeps winning. But he never lost his place in the covenant. Remember that. Christian, as we go on in our daily lives, we will sin. Sin will always affect us this side of heaven. We will always be faced with this. We'll be pounded day after day with this. And it doesn't matter what kind of sin, whether it's lust, anger, jealousy, bitterness, greed, whatever it may be, you will face that. There's no way out of that. We live in a fallen world, and in a fallen world that's defined by sin, we are part of this and we get hit by it. But it will not last forever. And you will never lose your place in the family of God if you've trusted in Christ and put your faith in him. So Abraham lies about Sarah to Abimelech, the king. His kingdom is in the southern part of Israel, if you can picture it on a map. And Abimelech believes that Abraham uh, was telling the truth, and so he takes Sarah into his harem. The only thing I can think of at this point is as a husband, what is going through his mind? Do you think he's dancing and saying, man, I got through that, Whew. No, he's pacing. He, he's beating himself up, rightly so, thinking, how in the world am I gonna get out of this one? I've done it again. I've made a mess of my life again. Again. 
What Abraham couldn't seem to figure out was that God was not going to allow Abraham's sin to be the end of this story. God made a covenant promise to Abraham, and God always keeps his promises. So what does God do? Look at verse 3. This is wild to think about this. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. God threatens judgment against Abimelech for taking Sarah into his harem. A good discussion question is not about this verse necessarily. But when you're getting to know someone, one of the questions I always ask is you can figure out a lot about a person by which era they would visit if they had a time machine. Where would you go and when? Some people would say, I want to go back to the days of Abraham. No, you don't. I hope you don't. So if there is ever a time where we get time machines, do not go back to this point in time. You get talking snakes. You get scary visions. You get sulfur and fire falling down from the sky. Now, we'll see that down the road, but, but I don't want to go back to that. It sounds like a bad trip, but it did happen. I'm grateful that the primary means that God communicates to us is through his word and not through telling us we're dead men. Visions. Talking animals. Abimelech was frightened. God tells him that he is a dead man. So look at verses four and five. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Abimelech is a pagan. He's not a follower of the Lord. And yet he's behaving far more upright than Abraham has. God threatens judgment on Abimelech for taking Sarah. He says, you are a dead man. Now, again, if you start hearing voices, we'll talk. But if we were certain that the voice that you heard was God's voice, and it said, you are a dead man, that is frightening. And it seems a bit severe, doesn't it? Even in a dream. Why would God say this to Abimelech, who, who seems totally innocent other than having a harem, but he seems innocent? Abraham lied here, and we see that Sarah was in on the deception too. Abimelech was concerned because he didn't do anything wrong. God was just trying to get his attention, and it worked. Now, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, you know that God's plans will not be thwarted. There is no way that he would have let Sarah get pregnant by any other man other than Abraham. The promised seed could not come from two lines. One commentator wrote this. Suppose Abimelech had taken Sarah and God had not intervened. Two seeds would have been at the door to Sarah's womb. And to this day, an element of doubt would, have, would, would cling to the ancestry of our Lord. But God did intervene. God said, no, you will not touch her. Look at what he says in verses six and seven. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. God says to Abimelech, the, the pagan king, I know that you've done this from the integrity of your own heart. 
On one side, we have Abraham, who knew better, who, who had an encounters with God, who, who knew better, who was called by God, chosen by God for this covenant. And on the other hand, we have Abimelech, pagan king, not called by God, not a follower of the one true God. And who's the one that screws up over and over and over again? You think that Abraham and Sarah would be the ones described as having integrity. Instead, that description is given to someone who doesn't even know the Lord. That happens today too, doesn't it? How often have we seen, and, and I say this as holding a mirror up as I'm saying this, how often have we experienced a time where someone who's not a believer called us out for our behavior? Someone said, that doesn't sound very Christian. Someone says, that behavior, is, is that what your church approves? Oh, man. What would God think about that? When people have said that to me, they've often said that Christians are hypocrites. I say, I agree, we are. We're the worst kind. Because we do know better. We proclaim a truth that, that God has a standard and then we go home and we just throw that standard in the garbage. And we keep on sinning over and over again. We're like the Apostle Paul. I know that it's wrong and yet I keep doing it. Why? I want you to notice something else here. Did you see what God said to him? He said this, it is I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. It was God who prevented him from touching her. God's power can even dictate what a pagan king does. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. He stopped Abimelech from touching Sarah. Church, be grateful that God is sovereign over the nations. But don't miss the overall point of this section. Despite Abraham's fair, failure to trust God, God was not going to abandon him. Sarah would not be touched. Her womb would bring forth the son of the promise who would bring forth the Messiah. God used sinful creatures for his purposes. He does it through us, and he does it through those who are outside of the family of faith. God is sovereign over his creation. Celebrate that. So we've seen a similar sin in verses 1 and 2. We've seen intervention in 3 through 7. Now we see confrontation in verses 8 through 13. In verses 8 through 10, Abraham is rebuked again. Now this stings. You can almost hear the sarcasm in, in these words or the kind of the, the, the tone of voice is, is, is hard to hear. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and calling all his servants and told them all these things. He told everybody. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, why have you done this to us? And how have I sinned against you? Do you see the pattern repeating? The same exact thing's happening again. And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? He's rebuked again by a pagan king. The story is repeating itself. The pagan king, though, the crazy thing is, he's the one that's doing the right thing here. And the man of God's own choosing is the one who's sinning. If you hear nothing else today, I want you to remember this. And I say it every single week. Our standing with God is not based on how good we are. 
There is no amount of goodness that you can attain that would please God on your own. You can't. And yet we've, as Christians, created this culture, maybe through not reading all of Genesis and only reading parts of it, perhaps, but we've created a culture where we're just trying to change people's behavior. You should act like a Christian. What's a Christian? A sinner saved by grace. I'm no more different than someone who worships the devil, to be honest with you, other than the fact that I've been saved by the grace of God. That is the only difference. And yet God still works through all of this. We all need to hear this today, though. We all struggle trying to kill ourselves to be better, to improve, to, 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 to behave, to do the right things according to whatever standard that we have. But even through Abraham's sin, he never lost his standing with God. God's covenant was a one-way covenant here. It was not based on Abraham's goodness, and his sin didn't take away the promise either. God's plan was there, and it was going to happen, even through Abraham's rebellion and his sin. But let me be careful to say this too. That doesn't mean there's no consequences. A Christian who gets angry and hurts someone will have to face the consequences of that. If you're, if you're a follower of Christ and you rob a bank, just because you follow Jesus and you say, well, hey, my sins are taken care of, doesn't mean that you're not going to prison. Your earthly consequences are still there forever. And just know this, as a Christian, when we sin, when we sin, we, we should often remember that Christ on the cross took care of that sin. A, a band that I used to listen to talked about hammering the nails into the hands of Christ himself. And he said, my sins would take that hammer and drive the nail in each time. So as a Christian, our, our passion, our desire should say, we don't want to sin. Yes, we will. We know we will. It's a fact of life. We can't escape it. But every single time, it's driving that nail in and in. But we know that Christ is taking care of, of our sin. He's forgiven us of our sin, and he does not take his promise away. So Abraham had to deal with being called out by a pagan king. That was his consequence. And we've seen how in Abraham's story, God often uses those outside of the family to accomplish his purpose, specifically in calling Abraham out for his sin. The same thing happens when people outside of our church or outside of the faith call us out for our misbehavior. It's to bring us back. Sanctification. So you would again hope that Abraham would learn, but he doesn't. Look at verses 11 through 13. He gives more excuses. Abraham said, well, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she's my sister, the daughter of my father through not the, mother, not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we would come. Say of me, he is my brother. Abraham said that the fear of God wasn't with the people, but the truth is the fear of God wasn't with Abraham. He didn't fear God. There, there's a time and a place that we deal with the sins of society, absolutely. But I'm far more concerned about the sins in our own family than I am with the unrighteous laws that are being made in Nashville or Washington, D.C. I care about the family of Christ, that we are basking in the glory of the gospel. Not what some pagans are deciding to do. Abimelech, in fact, did fear God. 
The Old Testament saints were called by God to be witnesses to his glory. They would be a spotlight that would shine the glory of God to all the nations. We have the same task. When we, do, uh, uh, when we evangelize, when we share the gospel, when we talk to people about Jesus, when we serve others, we are doing exactly the same thing that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were called to do. But Abraham disobeyed. He rode off Abimelech as godless pagans. The truth is that they were, but God still used them. It was a different circumstance, but I'm reminded of Jonah. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Why? He didn't want to go there. The people were bad. He was a racist. He didn't want to go there. And God called him to go. What happened? Jonah went. It took a little prodding, but he got there. Notice what Abraham says. She is indeed my sister, and when God caused me to wander, he lies again, and then he tries to blame God to protect himself. What did Adam say in the Garden of Eden? The woman who you created, God, it's on you. You created her. You gave her to me. You created her. She caused me to sin. The Hebrew word that Abraham used for wander is never used in the Old Testament in a positive way. So we talk about the Israelites wandering in the desert. We talk about Abraham wandering off, leaving his, his hometown to go wander to be a sojourner. Abraham could have used other words that are not as negative. The word that he used can be translated as to err or to stray. It carries the same idea of a drunk person staggering. He says, God, you caused me to stagger. You caused me to leave. It wasn't my decision. God calls me to do this. You see, he's shifting the blame. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the pastor of the historic 10th Avenue Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, wrote this. Abraham should have said, forgive me, Abimelech, for dishonoring both you and my God. My selfish cowardice overwhelmed me, and I denied my God by fearing that he who called me could not take care of me. He is not as your gods of wood and stone. He is the God of glory. He is the living God, the creator, the most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He told me he would be my shield and my exceeding great reward and supplier of all my needs. In sinning against him, I sinned against you. Forgive me, Abimelech. But Abraham didn't say that. By any account, Abraham should have been made an outcast for his deceit. But look what Abimelech does. Verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants, and he gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Now notice this. Listen to the irony in his words. He says, To Sarah, he said, Behold, I've given your brother, not your husband, but your brother, some sarcasm there, a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign for your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and he also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. Abimelech shows Abram, Abraham grace. A thousand of anything is a lot, right? That's a lot. A thousand is a big number. A thousand shekels would be worth 20 brides of this day. That's a lot of money. And he gives them gives Abraham that. And then Abraham showed grace to Abimelech. However, uh, these women were healed. They're now able to be childbearers. In showing generosity to Abraham, Abimelech is heaping coals of fire onto Abraham's head. We know that, right? 
that you give grace to someone who doesn't deserve it, someone who has hurt you, and you do that, it is as if you're leaping coals or heaping coals of fire on someone's head. Abraham accepts these gifts, and even though he, in Genesis 14, refused a pagan king previously, here Abraham finds it hard to accept the gifts, but he takes it. And then we get to verse 18. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. God had previously closed up their wombs of all of the women and caused Abimelech not to touch Sarah. Now, while Abraham was busy trying to figure out a way to protect himself and ensure that the covenant stayed with him, God's plan was just unfolding perfectly. Have you seen that picture of Kermit the Frog drinking tea? Have you guys seen that, that meme? It's kind of how I picture this. Is the fact of, that you know chaos is happening around you and someone's sitting on their back porch just sipping tea, right? I know what's going to happen. I know the plans that are unfolding. I know what's about to happen. You don't, but I do. There is not a single moment that has fallen outside of God's sovereign will and his plan. Abraham did all that he could to destroy the covenant with God, and God said, nope, I made the covenant. I'm the one who gets to do this. I gave it to you, and I won't ever take it away. I think we all need to hear this, that God has never changed. That between the 400 years between the Old Testament and Matthew, God has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Abraham's rebellion is the same as ours. When we're brought into the family of God, it's forever. We don't have to worry about being sent back or sent away. We rest in the goodness of God even when we're behaving like wayward children. But we will lose. We will fail. We'll lose and we'll fail often. But our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers, and we will often fail but the victory does not belong to us. The victory is Christ's. And he has given us the spoils of that victory. If, if you're not a Christian, if you don't know Christ personally, this victory can belong to you. My, my prayer is that you don't leave here without trusting in Christ, putting your faith in him to know just as Abraham did that we are given our Christ's righteousness when we have faith, when we see ourselves as lowly and worms in the eyes of God, but still with value, when we see ourselves as low and Christ is high and we say, forgive me, forgive me of my sin, when we see the horrendous sins that we've created and committed and we put our faith and trust in Christ, God promises to forgive us, to wipe our slate clean, but not only that, but to give us the righteousness of Christ. So that when God looks at us, when the Father looks at us, he sees his son's reflection. If there hasn't been a point or time in your life where you've done that, do it today. For the Christian, we're reminded of the gospel and the greatness of this, that it's not dependent on our goodness. That our standing with God does not go up and down based on our day. Our standing with God is secure because of what he did with his son. Let's pray.